This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Austin Channing Brown, a writer, speaker, and media producer on racial justice. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Next year, she'll release a young reader's version of her book. She's also the founder and CEO of Herself Media. Austin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I am so pleased. I I almost said welcome back, although the last time that you were here, it was, you know, uh, under the old aegis of of Dear Prudence. So in many ways, this is brand new for both of us. It is. I'm so excited. Are you enjoying it? I am. And of course, in other ways, it's very familiar because you are, uh, you know, a a, a beloved. uh, And at this point, I think I can safely say longstanding, maybe not yet old, but longstanding friend uh, of both the show and myself. So I'm so pleased to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I am especially excited. We were talking about this briefly before we started recording. Uh, the the sort of questions progress through the natural like stages of a life. Um, yeah, feel in a great. Way that feels sort of neat. Um, and the middle one, I think, rightly, right, because the middle is often where the the most uh, juice is. Um, it right. is an incredibly complicated like friendship question with a lot of lead up and like names and specific wrongs and slights and I think sometimes that's my favorite letter even though I often talk about like hey let's keep it to under a minute try to like minimize (laughs) the number of details but every once in a while I'm like I want like a Dickensian letter yeah just reams of and then this happened and this happened it's just been accumulating like a big old curiosity shop of problems (laughs) right I should say I've I've been reading the old Curiosity Shop over the last like year and a half, so that's also probably what was on my mind. Of course, it, you have. It takes a while to get through, but it's fantastic. <laughs> How are you, Austin? It's so good to hear you. I really am so thrilled to be chatting with you. I will just I will never forget our epic road trip. Nor I. Hope- I. So close in my heart. And every time that I get to chat with you, it's just such a good time. I just love the way that your mind works. And so I'm so glad for this new iteration of of the pod and that I get to hang out with you. Well, the way that my mind works is very fond of you. And I'm also very excited to hear uh, just about, I don't know, either what books you're very, very slowly reading or what else is new in your neck of the woods. But I think first we should advise a very concerned 18-year-old who I just would like to reassure as much as humanly possible. The subject is robbing the cradle, question mark. I would like some input about the age gap between myself and my boyfriend. To preface, nobody in our lives has ever expressed any concern about this gap, including our parents. On paper, he's 17 and I'm 18. However, he's a high school junior and I'm a college freshman. Without context, our gap in grades and life situation sounds odd. We've been friends since his freshman year, and we started dating at the beginning of my senior year when he was a sophomore. We both had relationship experience before that. Since our birthdays are both close to the grade cutoff, he's slightly old for his grade, and I'm slightly young for my grade. I'm writing to ask if it's irresponsible for me to continue dating him now that I'm in college. Our relationship has been amazing. We've been together for almost a year and a half and have never had a real fight. 
on the rare occasion that something is wrong, we'll talk it over maturely. We love each other a lot and get along very well as friends. I don't want to lose him, but I struggle with feelings of guilt about the difference between our life stages. What do you think? I think this is very sweet indeed. I do too. I, yeah, I I don't want to spend too much time just reassuring the letter writer because I'm worried (laughs) I'll come across as a little condescending. I know. Because everything is so real and dramatic and could turn on a moment's notice when you are 18. Right. And of course, from my vantage point of 35, 17 and 18 look quite a lot alike. But I also distinctly remember being, you know, a college freshman and feeling acutely aware of the differences between a college freshman and a high school junior. So simply because those distinctions are no longer as um, significant to me now doesn't mean they're not important to someone in that situation. Right. Did you read this, Austin, as more a case of just someone being very conscientious? Or did you read this as possibly someone who's feeling a little bit ready to leave behind this relationship, but sort of worried that it would be unkind or unloving and is maybe trying to approach it through a lens of appropriate versus inappropriate rather than I want to break up with this guy? Well, I I think there is, I think there is a bit of awkwardness in the era that we live in, right? Because we are in an era where it's like, where we're talking about consent a lot, where we're talking about age a lot, where we're talking about, right? So I feel like this person is very present to the moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And I definitely appreciate that. And I wonder if it's just time, if it's just time. I want to be some embarrassment. Yeah, I I was wondering because there, there was a lot of sort of, again, front-loading with detail of like, here's the context. It wasn't strange when we started dating. It's not like I was on a college campus, got bored, wandered off, went to the nearest high school and like right. chatted up this guy. Exactly. exactly. Um, and so, you know, you know, again, like, good. I'm glad no one's been expressing concern. I can understand why it might feel a little strange when you first describe things to someone you're just meeting. But- I, you know, I hope very much nobody would say, whoa, 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 this was all okay six months ago. But now that you're in college, it is, uh, you know, ethically incumbent upon you to break right. up with him. Right. I I hope, I actually hope that what's under it is feeling the weight of that difference, right? Because even though on paper, 17 and 18 look very much the same, Considering those two life stages, there is a huge difference that happens when you make the leap from out of high school, right? And almost regardless of what direction you go, right? Whether it's college or the military or, right? Like there is just, there's a different world of life that happens afterwards. And it's it could be really hard to explain that to someone who hasn't yet made that leap. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't had those experiences yet. So I wonder if there is just sort of a disconnect that's happening, but maybe it's easier to talk about age than it is to talk about that experience because you don't want to make someone feel bad for something they can't control. Right. Um, and, And so I think for me, at least, the sort of hinge of this letter comes with that line, I'm writing to ask if it's irresponsible for me to continue dating him now that I'm in college. And I just would encourage you, letter writer, to think about when you have that concern, irresponsible towards what or whom? Like, do you think it's irresponsible 
of you because you think that he ought to be dating someone also in high school? Do you think that it's irresponsible towards yourself because you're worried that you're exposing yourself to some sort of potential, maybe not like censure, but possibly like judgmental curiosity that you'd rather not be exposed to? Do you think it's simply inevitable that you two will grow apart over the next two years and so it's irresponsible not to end things now, even though things are mostly quite placid between the two of you? Uh, I I don't have a really strong sense based on your letter which one you might mean. Um, Certainly nothing that you've suggested that you've written here suggests to me, oh, he's really going to be missing out on something important or you're really setting yourself up for trouble. So I think really you can let go a little bit of the question of responsibility and ask a little bit more, uh, you know, what do I want? Like I could read this in one of two ways, right? One could be, I love this guy. He's terrific, but our lives are going in really different directions. And I feel sort of Uh, at a loss, since I don't have any one thing I can point to and say, I don't like this relationship anymore, you know, I want out, but part of me would kind of like to say, it's been a great relationship, you're a good person, you haven't done anything wrong, but I would also like to break up and go explore college now. Partly I'm worried that that would hurt him and I care about him, partly I'm worried that would be thoughtless, partly maybe I'm worried that I would miss him and lose this anchor to another important part of my life all of which makes a great deal of sense when you're, you know, in college and thinking about sort of one of the the bigger relationships you've had in your life so far. Um, And I wish I could say, you know, either, yes, you should break up with him and then, you know, become great friends and have a thrilling next couple of years in college by yourself, or no, it'll be great. You'll both grow and learn so much. It, It really is very much up to you. And I think the fact that you two haven't argued much maybe makes you a little worried that you won't be able to discuss something complicated with him or that you shouldn't be envisioning the possibility of letting go of this romantic relationship. But I I think at least on some level, part of you wants to consider it, even if you decide you'd rather stay with him. That's right. I think it might be time to risk the first argument. Yeah. And to just think, you know, you struggle with feelings of guilt. I, I think it's always useful to get specific, like guilt about what? And and does he share those feelings? Like if you say, I feel guilty that he might be missing out, that's something you can genuinely ask him about. I realize not everyone's going to immediately be perfectly honest, um, maybe if only because they don't always know. But right. if you think, oh, I'm worried that he's you know not going to enjoy his weekends because he'll be visiting me or or calling me or something, ask him about it. Does he share that concern? Because that might be helpful to you if he says, no, I think it's great, and you still feel uneasy, then you might be able to identify, okay, I was sort of hoping that he felt bad about it so that (laughs) I could be really generous and, you know, chivalrous. But if he doesn't mind it and I still don't love it, then it's maybe time for me to say, I love my high school boyfriend, but I don't want to date him all through college, which is very reasonable. Did you have a high school boyfriend that that you tried to carry with you to college in some form or another? (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I do, I do though distinctly remembering what it was like to have some of those relationships fall away and being very conscious of which ones I was gonna carry with me. And and there were definitely some that were a painful falling away. Like some of them were just very natural, and others were very much on purpose or like, I can't carry this one anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did, uh, by the way, uh, keep dating my high school boyfriend for did the you? first like 
two years of college or something like that. And that was also long distance. He lived in in the UK and I lived in California. So there was a lot of like, I get out of my, you know, 3 p.m. or three hour class at 7.15. And if I'm lucky, you're still up because it's like one in the morning where you are and we can get on Skype on my old laptop. And uh, it was very 2005, but... um, (laughs) I love it. I laughed because I had exactly one boyfriend my sophomore year for about six months. And that was it for my dating life in high school. Yeah. Yeah. But I did not want to break up with him. So I can't relate to this part. I, I thought he hung the moon. I did break up with him later, but you know, that's how 19 and 20 year olds often are. They behave uh-huh. uh, strangely. Um, I'm, I'm, I think we're both okay now. Like it's not, it, it did not blight my future. It's so hard to talk about these things in a way that doesn't come across as dismissive because I I feel both such tenderness for my 19-year-old self who felt these things like deeply to the core of my being and I also feel a lot of um, freedom from that person as much as I also feel a connection just because so many other things would go on to happen to change me and the world around me. That's Um, right. And it was both incredibly important and meaningful at the time. And it was also not the final word in in the shape that my adult life took. Yes. And I hope that's what this conversation sounds like, as opposed to condescending. Like Both of these people have so much of their lives to live and so much to experience. And there will be so many decisions along the way. And and sometimes, especially if you are generally like a sort of person who's really concerned with acting rightly, a desire to move on from something might first manifest itself as a feeling of guilt or obligation. And that doesn't mean, I promise you, letter writer, you actually do just want to break up with this guy and this is how your feelings are making themselves known. But it may be that that is how this process is starting for you because you often think about other people's needs uh, in addition to your own. And if so doesn't make you a bad person. Um, Oftentimes, if you're kind of mentally exiting a romantic relationship, you say things like, he's amazing. I love him as a friend. I don't want to lose him. I'm struggling with guilt rather than I can't wait to see him. I miss him so much. Where is he right now? Right. Oh, my heart. (sighs) I recommend Stevie Nicks and um, lots of journaling. I (laughs) I love a good journal. Yeah, I, I often don't journal unless I'm in real pain. That's often a sign. Same. Like, oh. As soon as things are like stable again, I don't know where the journal went. <laughs> yeah, things are things are bad if I'm journaling regularly. But I guess you know it's nice to have something available in a pinch. Do you think, Alston, that you are ready to move on to a question of infinite more? Uh, detail and complication. <laughs> I'm ready to get messy. Let's let's get messy. Yeah. So this is just like um, someone is just sort of handing us a friendship and saying, "Here's sort of everything that's happened over the last few years. What do you think?" Which I love. So the subject is bad friend, and I, I will just preface this by saying the letter writer's best friend's name is Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie's ex is Liam. Liam's new girlfriend is Sally, and and those are some of the most important names in the in the theatrical that you're about to see. I'm a woman in my 30s, as is my best friend, Ronnie. She's amazing, kind, generous, smart. We used to be next-door neighbors, then we stayed in the same bubble during the pandemic, and even though my partner and I have recently moved across town so I can start grad school, we still try to get together for group get-togethers and girls' nights. 
Ronnie's rare bad moods normally involve a few guys who sometimes join these get-togethers. One is a pretty big jerk, who few people really like, who makes tasteless jokes about women and Asian people. He's also upset Ronnie in the past by touching her hair and clothes. The other guy who bothers her is an ex who treated her thoughtlessly and really hurt her. This guy, Liam, started bringing a girl he's seeing casually Sally around about eight months ago. I love Sally. And I asked Ronnie how she felt about this. Ronnie said she was fine with it. And she herself has also seen a few different guys since her breakup with Liam. Recently, though, we had a girls' night with me and Ronnie, Sally, and another friend. And it didn't go well. Sally was talking about a date that she recently went on with Dennis, a guy she met at a party I threw a while back. Sally had gotten his number from my partner, who works with Dennis. I realized as we were talking that I had also pointed Dennis out to Ronnie at that same party and mentioned that he was exactly her type and she had agreed. I called myself a bad friend for forgetting. Ronnie said that I wasn't, but then she was a little quiet. Sally also mentioned that Liam had been really clingy since since she started seeing another guy who's also in our friend group. Ronnie texted me later that night to say the situation with Dennis had made her feel weird, although it was hard for her to pinpoint why. She didn't really know him and hadn't exactly expected me to set them up, but she felt oddly rejected by the situation. I agreed that I could see how it was uncomfortable for her. She later told me that it's hard to be around Liam so much, especially when Sally was talking about how clingy he'd become with her. Liam had been pretty neglectful towards Ronnie. I suggested that she do her best to focus on the guy she's seeing now and ignore Liam and that I was confused to hear that she didn't like being around Sally. I thought counseling might help, too, and she cut the conversation short, saying that we had different goals. Hers was not to see Liam anymore and not to hear about him, and mine, according to her, was for her to be okay with the situation. A few weeks passed, and Ronnie seemed to be her normal self, but when we were gathered with friends last weekend, and I called her my best friend, Ronnie surprised me by subtly scoffing. I was upset and asked her later if everything was okay. And she just said she felt the best friend was a bit rich when we never saw each other anymore except in groups. When I never checked in to see how she was doing, her mother is terminally ill, and she's right with everything else that's been going on I had forgotten. And that when I didn't stick up for her or didn't even seem to remember her, I was floored and left in tears. I want to talk about this, but I'm not sure what to do or say. Was I really a bad friend? I hope, by the way, Austin, this doesn't sound like I'm reveling in somebody else's pain when I just say, I feel like I just, I feel like a vampire who's just fed. Like, I feel so alive on these, like, details of somebody else's friend crisis. And I don't, I really don't mean, like, I'm glad you're suffering. I just mean, like, I was born for this. (laughs) Yes. There's so much happening. Well, one, there's so much happening. Mm -hmm. And two... Friendships in your 30s. Mm-hmm. Woo! <laughs> I'm qualified for this. Listen, they get complicated. They do. They get so complicated. And I feel like this is like the essence mm-hmm. of how they get complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to start with this one? Do you want to start by answering the question whether or not the letter writer has been a bad friend? Do you want to start by like clarifying all the different key players and, and um, configurements <laughs> about this. Uh, do you want to make any recommendations about what Sally or Liam ought to do or Dennis? Oh my goodness. So many people. Okay, honestly, so my first, okay, my first sort of like question or the thing I want to poke at mm-hmm. is the, the friendship group. Mm-hmm. Versus the individual one-on-one friendship. Mm-hmm. 
Because it sounds like they're spending a lot more time as part of a group and sort of circling around one another as opposed to being indulging in the best friendship in any sort of one-on-one way. And I'm Mm -hmm. very curious about this. Yeah, I am too. I think especially because there's that earlier unnamed character who's just like, by the way, there's a guy who's apparently this big part of all our interactions who apparently nobody likes and is racist and sexist and is constantly like grabbing at Ronnie. But that's not even the problem here. Um, And I feel like maybe that is part of the problem here. And I don't mean to suggest that this letter writer is the only one who can fix this, but like I would certainly encourage the letter writer to kind of think about if this guy's a jerk who almost no one in the group likes, mm-hmm. why is he here so often? That's right. Um, what, if anything, have I done or said in the past when he has like touched Ronnie's hair or clothes? Have I stood up for her? Have I invited other people to join me in standing up for her? Have I uncomfortably looked away and hoped he didn't do it again? Um, You know, not to like add to your plate, letter writer, but you did include that detail. And I think it's worth um, addressing, not that you have to like round up a bunch of people and pitchforks and get rid of him tomorrow, but that does seem like kind of maybe an opportunity for people to make a few waves and either stop inviting him so often um, or at least get pretty brusque with him and make it clear that if he's going to be making tasteless racist or sexist jokes or trying to touch people who don't want to be touched, he's going to be met with pretty forceful opposition from more than one person. That's right. That there are boundaries, values, and ethics that are expected to be followed when we're together. And that seems like a pretty low bar for... Yeah. Yeah, especially when it's like, none of you even like him that much. Like, that should give you some courage. Like, if part of you is like, well, I'd like to, but I'm afraid and I haven't done it before. uh, You know, if you go to a couple of people and say, hey, I want to stop this next time it happens. I'm going to say something. Will you join me? If you give someone like a pretty concrete thing to do and you just say out loud, like, if he does this again, I'm going to say, that's fucked up. Don't do it. It feels a lot less daunting than like I have to go fix this guy or or right. um, change his soul. Right. Um, like all you're doing is just making a quick plan. And when you give other people specifics, it's a lot easier for them to say yep. Um, and I know some people get really worried about the possibility of confronting a friend or someone they pretend is a friend because they have mutual friends. And I just I think that's a solvable one. And I think that will go a long way towards maybe um, opening up another couple of avenues towards uh, redress elsewhere. So that was my sort of first thought, even though that wasn't necessarily the first question that the letter writer had. Yeah, but should we should we talk about the other characters in the story since we we started with this one? Should we Williams? Yeah, by all means. Awkward. Certainly. <laughs> so awkward to have someone that you were into but wasn't into you and now is talking, now you're listening to the person he's into being like, whoa, too much affection. that's that's awkward yeah and you know letter writer you say that you were really surprised that Ronnie said she was having a tough time being around Liam and Sally so often because previously she had said she didn't mind and you know I would just encourage you to let go of some of that surprise like I can understand both perhaps it really was kind of fine earlier on but now that Sally has become really close with you 
and is also dating Liam and other guys in the group and is also complaining in front of Ronnie. And and that could be perfectly innocent. I'm sure Sally has no idea what their relationship was like. Um, But like, oh, he's so clingy. You know, of course that would make Ronnie feel bad when she reflects on, boy, you couldn't get that guy to cling when I was dating him. And even though I don't want to get back together with him, like that's never fun to, to hear about. Exactly. I, I can understand why that changed for her. I can understand why at first she was like, oh, that's not so bad. I can handle it. And then after eight months of like continued enmeshment and continued reminders of how differently Liam acts with Sally than he did with her, yeah. I get why it's no longer a priority for her to like see the two of them a lot. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, to that end, letter writer, I I don't want to say either you're a good or a bad friend. I'm not invested in, like, trying to make you feel bad or, like, pass or fail a test. Um, But I I do think that saying to her that you were confused, uh, that she didn't like being around Sally, if you were genuinely confused, I hope what I just said clarifies things for you. Um, And if you weren't really confused but you wanted to be confused because you wanted her to be smoother around this— then that might be an opportunity for a bit more of an apology. I I just think that, um, especially that bit about, I agreed that I could see how it was uncomfortable for her. I think that's the kind of thing that's like, it's a little wishy-washy, I guess. If somebody says, I'm not blaming you for anything, but this made me feel really sad. Often what they would maybe like in that moment is, I'm really sorry, which isn't the same thing as I take full responsibility for every pain you've ever experienced and I'm the worst. Just something that's a little more direct and that takes a little bit more of a personal investment in her well-being. That's, I think, the difference between like a friend you have some distance with versus a best friend. Again, that's not to say that every time you say I'm really hurt to your best friend, your best friend says, you know, I am the general of fixing things and I I, I will take personal responsibility. I'm sorry. But at least me, if, if I said this to a friend and I heard, I guess I can see why that was uncomfortable for you. And I was sort of hoping for, man, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize at the time that somebody else was going after his number, but like the timing's just terrible. And I feel really bad that even indirectly I was part of like raising hopes that were later dashed. Um, I, I'm really sorry. Like that's painful, right? Oh, completely agree. And I honestly, I would want my person, right? My, my best friend to go one step further and say, so how can I help? Right. Do you want me to try and figure out whether or not he'll be there in advance? Do you want me to like, how should we go do something else? Should we sit at the other end of the table? Like, how how can I be helpful to you? And as you process this, you know, and stay a part of this friendship group or not? Is that even what you want? Like, I would just want my my best friend to be more proactive in trying to help me navigate what are genuinely awkward situations. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, letter writer, I, I think there's a couple of maybe missed opportunities that you've had. I think an apology that is not falling on your sword and saying you're a monster, but just, I'm really sorry. I haven't been as there for you as I would like to be. And I would like to change that if if you're open to it would would go a long way. And then especially, I think, the place where I think you do probably just owe her the most straightforward and sincere apology with no hedging is the stuff about her mom. That's um, right. And again, I don't mean to make you feel like a monster. I get that life sometimes gets complicated and difficult, but just just go full, full-throatedly full into an apology there. I'm so sorry. That's your mom. Of course that's been painful. Uh, I'm really sorry I haven't been asking. How can I make that up to you? How is she? How are you? 
Um, and, and to also be prepared for her not to want to necessarily immediately share a lot with you. But yeah, I would just say this is, I think, a really good opportunity for apologies that don't fall into the category of I've been a monster. And I think those kind of apologies are often the easiest to give and the most pleasurable to receive because it, it demonstrates real care and interest and affection in a way that, you know, can really be a balm. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I I think in these moments, you it's it's helpful for me, at least, to really lead from my love for the other person as opposed to my defensiveness and my desire to see myself as good, <laughs> you know, like to let go. Like whether I'm good or bad or not, I'm so glad that you love me and I love you and I want to make this right. And, you know, so whatever that looks like, um, but it certainly begins with a conversation. Yeah. So based on my reading of this letter, you know, letter writer, it seems to me like Ronnie wants a couple of things from you. I think, you know, number one, an acknowledge a slightly deeper acknowledgement of of ways that you have been slightly insensitive towards her and and a earnest desire to check in with her more often about her mother. She wants to spend some more time with you one-on-one rather than just in group settings. And again, you know, I think you can say, I'm really sorry I've gotten so caught up in my own move and switched to grad school. I haven't made the same time for us that I used to, and I want to change that. Again, that's not like, wow, no one could understand. Like, I think she'll understand. Um, And you can, you know, even if it's just like one get-together that's just the two of you a month um, would, would go a long way. And then the other thing is, I think part of you has really hoped that Ronnie and Sally are going to become good friends because you love Sally. But I think you need to let that one go and to maybe just say to Ronnie, like, let me know what boundaries feel good for you about Sally. Um, I enjoy my friendship with her, but I don't want to put the two of you uh, in a situation that would be painful for you. And I don't want to try to, um, like, force you to spend a lot of time with her. And, and to kind of just let that dream go, like not all friends come together into a big friend group. That's fine. But yeah, don't, don't do any more like, I'm surprised you don't like Sally. Eight months ago, you said you thought Sally was okay. And therefore, any change in that is just like, almost like you going back on a promise. Like, she doesn't like Sally. It's fine. And then, yeah, I would say maybe also, and like, this can be hard, I think, if someone's told you that they've, that you've hurt them. It can be a lot to kind of contemplate and it's not always fun to say and I've thought of another way I might have hurt you but in another way I think it's actually like a real demonstration of like a true living amends because it shows that you've been Mm -hmm. thinking additionally about her it's a little bit like Rebecca at the well you know I'll water your camels too yes and so I think to just say this nameless jerk that we all hate um I know has really upset you in the past um and you know again letter writer maybe you've been doing a ton about that in which case ignore it but maybe suggest to her that you would also like to do more for her on that front um and the one-on-one time could go a long way toward having the space then to ask about mom or ask about other ways of supporting your friend through caregiving for a parent yeah and i know there's a lot here i've like given this letter writer kind of a laundry list of things to do and the letter writer's already feeling a bit weepy and, and sad about how things have been going badly for the last few months so you know, letter writer, I hope this doesn't feel overwhelming. I mostly just want to stress that I think this is something that you two can repair. And I think this is something that your friendship can recover from. And I think if you were to just really stress to her, I want to be able to earn the right to call you my best friend. And I want to live up to that standard. Um, So I'm making it sound like you two are like in a 
like chivalrous order together that you're like knights and you're like, oh, I've besmirched the name of our society. Um, but I always like being a little chivalrous towards one, one's friends. I think it's, yes. it's lovely. Um, and to just say like, I, I don't want to force that title on you and I don't want to make too much out of this, but I want to earn that right back. I want you to truly feel like when I call you my best friend. Mm. Um, there is no scoffing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so this is I felt on both sides. Yeah, there's a real opportunity here to lovingly repair rather than defend. Um, And I think if you come to her with that, I think so much of her will be relieved, glad. There might still be some pain to work through together or some reserve that that you'll need to give her some time and patience with. But I I really have have high hopes for how she'll respond to this. Yeah, right now she sounds pretty isolated. Yeah, yeah. And... You know, Having I her love, friend back could make a huge difference. Yeah, and I just, I, I want, you know, I want to repair friendship. This is so funny, too, because no. I'm often, like, with romantic relationships, like, well, it doesn't sound like you're having a very good time anymore. It'll Get out of fine. there. And then with this, like, incredibly complicated friend setup, I'm just like, if you go to her on your knees and you recite the sacred words that you said together on that beach seven years ago when you pledged your troth, you let can me, recover. Let me offer you this sonnet. <laughs> But, yeah. you know, I, I think that's often true. And historically, I've often treated um, my friendships as like a, an opportunity for, for chivalry to flourish. And, oh, I just, my heart really goes out to these, these people. How are you doing? Let's take a, a pause from from solving the problems of the world. How are you? What are you reading right now very, very slowly or not at all? What are you up to these days? Well, you know, I am a person who returns to the same books that I love over and over and over again. So I am probably on my, you know, 20th read of Rebecca and <laughs> 20th read of, and then there were none. Um I did, though, just finish um, a book called Counterfeit by Kirsten Chen. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. I'm really I'm really here for books that you have to figure out what's happening a little bit. Mm-hmm. What's real, what's not real, and what's sort of writing the middle based on whose voice is telling the story. And Counterfeit had all of that. So I was very pleased. Oh, I'm so pleased. I finally have uh, caught up to the the like Kane's jawbone event that mm-hmm. apparently everyone is doing um and and I've now been tearing out uh, our copy at home and happily just like looking up a bunch of details that I'm sure have nothing to do with the mystery um and and I look forward to never solving it like most people. Right. Exactly. I'm really here for a good mystery. I just love it. I don't know how authors do it. I think maybe that's why I'm so excited about Kane's Jawbone is like the average mystery novel, I feel annoyed and angry from jump because I'm just like, oh, you mentioned that weird detail about someone being late for a reason. I don't know what that is and I'm not going to figure it out, but I'll feel like I should. Whereas this one, just in case no one's familiar with it, it's a murder mystery puzzle book uh, written by uh, Edward Mathers, who who was one of the early guys who developed the cryptic crossword puzzle. Um, and it's it's, it's printed uh, out of order, and only apparently three people have ever solved it since it came out in the 30s. And so there's like this sort of deadline coming up for people to try to solve it. Um, 
And I just appreciate it because I'm like, three people have figured it out in 90 years. I'm absolutely not going to be the fourth. No. Uh, and instead, I just get to like look up little puzzles and be like, oh, that's a quote from Walt Whitman. I still don't know who did it. I'm not supposed to. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it's fun. I mean, I understand in both. Sometimes it's fun to solve the mystery. But I actually don't even attempt to. I love just going along for the ride and letting the mystery live. Then this is the book for you. Just let it unfold. Maybe I'll join you. How far in are you? Uh, Grace and Cliff and I last night went through note-taking on a couple of pages. I think I did love too. It. You went through note-taking? Wait. So- it comes with notes. I mean, you're supposed to tear the book. You're supposed to tear the pages out. You take oh, notes okay. on the I've bottom. I've actually seen it. Yeah. So you, the goal is it's 100 pages. You have to figure out uh, three things. One, what order the pages are meant to go in. Uh, two, the identities of the six murder victims. And three, however many murderers there might be of the six oh, murder I'm victims. Into it. I'm into it. I'm going to find it. You know, I mean, again, I just can't stress enough. When when Grace first introduced me to cryptic crosswords as opposed to mm-hmm. American style cross crosswords, I, I wanted to commit an act of of great and shocking violence. I was so mad. I'm still so mad when I think about it. I think cryptic crosswords are hateful, hateful things. Um, and there's nothing worse than looking at one and realizing like, oh, that's a clue to something. And I'm supposed to know it's supposed to be an acronym or something because you said belatedly. And I I want you to die. So that's what I've been up to lately. <laughs> I but, love that. That's yeah, great. I love, I love being like, oh, that sounds like a poem. I'm going to look up that phrase. And it's like, oh, it is a poem. Good for you. That's cute. You're so no are y'all to- actually trying to figure it out together? Like, so am I trying to figure it out? I mean, Grace is actually pretty good at cryptic crosswords. I think she stands a chance of solving it. Uh, I don't know how strong a chance. Uh, I, I'm there as like, fun sidekick stuff i would never be able to like maintain focus and energy and remember who was what and where i'm, I'm gonna be there to be gonna be like oh, that sounds like a walt whitman quote let's look that up that's all i'll be doing i totally have faith in grace i do too yeah and cliffs is pretty good at that sort of thing too really but, um i will fully take partial credit like if they if the two of them come up with something together i'll be like i i was also there i was in the room Present. remember when i found that walt whitman quote that was key mm-hmm. to all of this. Mm-hmm. Remember when I said that sounds like something to me? I, I was born for stuff like, oh, that sounds like something. Oh, it's that guy. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I feel like the British are really good at coming up with like deranged puzzle books. Mm-hmm. What was that one? There was one um, There was one in the 80s. Uh, I want to say it was called In Search of the Golden Horse, where it was like a puzzle book about a golden horse. And then they actually put a gold horse somewhere and and then they had to look it up. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, I'm looking this up, by the way, and, and apparently this is what happened. Although the promoters of the contest claimed the puzzle was solvable within the allotted time frame, this did not prove to be the case. The deadline passed without solution, and the prize was later donated. So... <laughs> There you are. There you go. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's that's where puzzles are at for me, I think. <laughs> Just donate the prize. Just donate the prize. Give it, give it to a worthwhile cause. I'm so, clearly not the one. <laughs> clearly not the worthwhile cause. <laughs> like I've been I've been on a little bit of a riddle kick because Facebook has started showing like fake AI riddles to me. Um, really? It's all stuff like a woman has four children named North, East, and West. 
what is the name of the fourth child's name? And then there's no answer. And the comments are all stuff like different people saying things like, the name of the fourth child is supposed to be what? But they should have framed it in the form of a question. Or someone else is like, my name is Sylvia. And that, I think, is exactly the level of deconstructed riddle that I can actually deal with. (laughs) Oh, social media. Oh, Austin, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you have any last thoughts that you want to leave us with? Any general advice you want to give people who have um, uh, problems with their friends or with the news or anything else? Oh my gosh. I just, you know, I mean, I think it's clear that the the core, the theme of these has so much to do with communication and taking the risk, <laughs> whether it's the risk to say sorry or the risk to say here's what I want or the you know that relationships are inherently risky mm-hmm. and I just feel for all of our our letter writers because you care right you just you care so much and um yeah I just want to wish them all well as they Move forward. Take some risks in those conversations. Well, guess what? So do I. I also want to wish them well. So you're not so special. (laughs) Danny and I are virtually holding hands wishing you well. Oh, that was such a nice way to turn my weird competitiveness um, (laughs) into something much nicer. So thank you so much for that. And thank you again for joining us. It was just so lovely to get to talk to you. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right, well, have a beautiful rest of the day. Get Kane's job on if you can. Let me know if you solve it. You know I will. If I solve it, no, I will let you know if I get it. Yeah. And before I let the rest of you go, I have a response from a listener to an earlier letter uh, from the episode that I did a while back with Noah Zazanis. The letter was pronoun panic. Uh, And here's the letter. Devoted listener here. I just wanted to thank you for the answer that you gave to the person who was considering coming out as non-binary in your recent pronoun panic episode. Subtracting a few details, I could have easily written that letter, unfortunately down to the blithely transphobic family. You and Noah both said a lot of things that I needed to hear, perhaps brisk at times, but that felt important too, and overall I found your treatment of the question so empathetic and generous. In most other parts of my life, I strive for pleasure and abundance, but I also conveniently forget about what I want when it comes to gender and instead focus on what I fear. I want to try to start changing that, and I want to start by talking to more of the people that I'm close to who I know will be receptive about my gender this summer. Thanks for your contribution in this episode and throughout the show to my working through some of these things. Oh, letter writer, uh, that warms my heart so I can't even tell you. I realize that you did not actually write the letter in question, but um, I I agree it is a not uncommon problem. And so I'm really, really glad and grateful that you were able to get something out of it. Um, And certainly I can understand if you come from a blithely transphobic family, why you often fixate on things you fear about gender, because the fear is real and present. Um, But I'm really, really glad that you also feel ready to start uh, moving past the fear because nothing's going to take that away. And uh, yeah, I just really, really glad to hear from you. Thank you so much. I hope this uh, series of conversations with the other people in your life throughout the summer goes really, really well. And even if it doesn't, fuck them if they can't take a joke. And with that, uh, I'll see you all next week. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. 
Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with a guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I thought it was a really interesting tidbit that the writer put in here about their previous participation in local elections mm-hmm. and figuring out who to vote for. And I wonder if that is where a compromise lies. Right, because it didn't seem a little less. like they were saying, <laughs> and I'm never going to vote again, right? So maybe right. they could talk to their partner about like, you know, when this particular election comes up, let's spend a couple of different afternoons actually discussing the candidates. Right, right. And and maybe even in some way, like my highest hope would be that that becomes an invigorating conversation because then you are participating in perhaps making things change, at least in your local area and the potential for seeing something positive happen and the news not always being detrimental, you know, that maybe the library did get more funding Or, you know, I wonder if there is a possibility to start small, start local. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.